Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, the first part of a multi-part series featuring Jim Shooter. Uh, I and a couple of friends spoke to Shooter for about seven hours back uh, several years ago, and I thought it'd be really interesting to share that interview with you here. So as you might imagine, with part one of an interview, we talk about Jim Shooter's childhood and the beginning of his uh, career working at DC Comics, and then we get into um, the beginning of his time working at Marvel. It's a fascinating conversation. As you can hear, Shooter is a tremendous raconteur and storyteller, and I think it just makes for a fascinating conversation. Shooter, of course, is one of the more controversial figures in comics history, so hearing his side of the story is always very intriguing. I hope you enjoy it. The stories about Mort Weisinger in particular are really quite fascinating, and it's intriguing to hear the whole story from Shooter's standpoint. I uh, hope you enjoy it, and uh, thanks for listening. The show begins right after this quick advertisement. Before I ever went to the grade school, uh, I learned to read. And the way I learned to read was uh, my mother would read me comic Superman, yeah. the Donald Duck, Uncle Scrooge, and she'd point at the words. She'd read them real slowly, and she'd point at the words. After a while, I didn't need mommy anymore, you know. And um, so, uh, so, and you know, I went. I started one school, and then I moved to another school. So, so the, the, I, I was, it was like in the middle of the year, and the, and the teacher, you know, she didn't know me from uh, many other kids, you know. So, so anyway, she didn't know if I could read or not, right? So anyway, we were playing this this game where I don't remember how the, that it worked exactly, but every kid had to come up with a word, and if if you could spell the other kid's word but he couldn't spell yours, well then you'd get a point or something like that, right? So this is first grade. So people come up with like cat and dog and door, you know. So I said, bully this. <laughs> and the teacher says, you don't know even know what that is. I said, it's fish soup, you know. And she said, you can't spell that. I said, sure I can. So she said, well, come on. So she made me write, you know, writing bully based on her paper. She had to look it up. I'm not sure I could spell it. <laughs> yeah, she had to look it up. Yeah. And uh, um, she says, okay, class, the word's bully based. Well, needless to say, I won. <laughs> and I was ready to go again, man. I had teletype and invulnerable, and I had all these great words, you know. And uh, uh, I got that. Uh, from a comic, actually, Carl Barks comic. Oh, yeah. Although I didn't remember that for years. So uh, years pass, and uh, and I told that story here and there, and even I started thinking it was apocryphal. I started thinking I must have made that up. <laughs> um, and then one time, we're, a bunch of us were sitting around the office at Marvel, and uh, somebody asked me about that, and I saw so I told the story, and I, like I said, at this point, I was I wasn't even convinced that that it really happened. I said, so it was in this Donald Duck comic book. I said, there was this word, bullyabase. And Walt Simonson said, no, Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> and I said, really? And he says, yes. He says, because Uncle Scrooge sent Donald and the nephews to Africa to get the secret recipe for crocodile bullyabase. And, and as he said crocodile bullyabase, I said it with him because he brought it back. <laughs> it's crocodile bullyabase. And so to me, that validated the story, you know, like if Walt remembered Bully Basin, you know, 
So, what are the odds? Uh, so yeah, I mean, well, what are the odds there? But uh, so anyway, I got to tell Carl Barks that story. He at did. His ninetieth birthday party. Wow. So, what was his reaction? He said, then? "Well, young man, says, I don't remember that story, but I'm glad you enjoyed it." <laughs> Doing a, I like to do a kind of an analysis of what makes a great comics work, and I did a study of one of his stories, um, and the storytelling pieces are so oh, perfect. Every piece is just so precisely correct in all his stories, and all still feels so fresh. It's this magical combination of freedom and and planning yeah. that it's really hard to pull off, and he did it so elegantly. Oh, and again and again, month after month. Brilliant guy. I mean, he doesn't often get listed among the, the, the great comic book, you know, creators. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, he should be right up there on the top. Oh, yeah. I think that's JJ. I think there's more and more people now recognizing the importance of this work. Yeah. Well, yeah. It'll be interesting to see whether the current Fetographics series is bringing him back some more. Uh, the guy is. They've been doing some. I don't know if you've seen them. They're doing some nice editions of uh, his stuff. It's sort of themed volumes as opposed to like chronological. My father used to buy me the Whitman reprints, and the, they come three to a sleeve in the plastic yeah. wrap, and you get three comics in there. And uh, I would, you know, read them on vacations and things. He'd buy them for me at gas stations or what have you. And I, even then, I noticed that there was a difference in quality. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> at six, seven years old. The Walt you know, Disney Digest. And only later did it did it become apparent to me that yeah, the reason there was a difference in quality is because there was this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Carl Barks, who was, you know, producing yeah. this amazing stuff. Yeah. So that might be a good transitional question. One <laughs> of the things that you hope you preached very much in your professional career was the attention to storytelling fundamentals. Yeah, right. Um, did, did you call on Barks some learnings from Barks as part oh, of that? Oh well, I mean, I read a million Carl Barks books when I was a kid, and I guess I picked up something from him. But I also, uh, uh, I, I, you know, read Kirby books and Ditko books and. and you know anything that I, I uh, well you know see the thing is when I was a kid I just I just read comics you know uh, stopped when I was about eight because uh, they all just seemed pretty much the same and in the fifties that was true they, they, you know every issue of Superman it's like Lois is trying to discover his secret identity and you know there was no action it, it was just they were they started to get tedious so I gave them up and then when I was uh, <clears throat> twelve. Uh, I was in the hospital for minor operation, and if you're in a kid's ward in a hospital in, you know, 1962 or whatever it was, it, it was just, there were comics everywhere, <laughs> right? And so, so I'm looking at these comics, and um, the DC comics, there were lots of DC comics there, and they were all in good shape, and there were all these ratty, dog-eared other comic books, they were Marvel comics, which had been read to death. <laughs> The DC is like not hardly anyone to touch them. Well, I was familiar with the DC, so I picked up a couple of those and I read them. They were exactly the same as when I was eight years old. Nothing had changed, you know. And then I thought, well, let me try some of these other, you know, these, these ratty ones. And I, I read, like, I think one of the first ones I read was um, uh, maybe the second issue of Spider-Man had the vulture in it. And, mm -hmm. um, and I'm like, whoa! <laughs> 
<laughs> what happened to comics? And and I thought these are really great. And and uh, so I started, you know, scouting around for Marvel comics when I could. And uh, in those days, you'd get two cents for every uh, soda bottle, you know, you return. So I go walking around along the railroad tracks or along the road looking for, you know, bottles. <laughs> get six bottles. That's a comic book, you know. Actually, it was it was it was really I was really annoyed when they went from a dime to twelve cents. But anyway, uh, <laughs> one more bottle. That's yeah. more work for you. Yeah, really. So so anyway, I uh, um, I started uh, tracking down Marvel comics. I got Fantastic Four number four. Uh, in a barber shop, I asked the barber, and he said, "Yeah, you can have it." Yeah. So the first modern stuff there, I think so. Yes, and the next one was Doctor Doom. Um, but uh, you know, so I started getting a hold of these things, and, and at that time, uh, uh, I'm getting around to your question. Uh, at that time, I was uh, I needed a job. You know, I mean, my family needed money, and uh, so. If you're 12 or 13, they're not going to hire you with the steel mill. You know, it's not going to happen. So I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? I got to, you know, I got to make something and sell it. Well, what can you? What can I make? I can't weave baskets. I can't do anything. You know. So I thought, well, I bet you I could do this. And uh, so I literally spent a year studying mostly Marvel comics, trying to figure out what I liked and what I didn't and why. And that's when I started noticing. Really, we're not not noticing. That's when I started analyzing storytelling. I mean, I guess I'd always noticed it. I mean, I just, but now I started thinking about it and um, and looking at the ones that I really liked and the ones that I didn't like as well. And saying, "Oh, I see." You know. Uh, so I, I for a year. I mean, with 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 intent, I studied comics. And then when I was 13, I thought, "Well, I'm ready." Okay. Yeah, here we go. So I. I wrote a comic book story and see my theory was I knew I couldn't write as well as Stan but I thought I could write well enough to sell to DC I said those guys need help <laughs> so, so so I, I wrote a comic book Legion of Superheroes which I thought was one of their more boring ones I mean it's really really funny I later got to know some of those guys and as I learned more I got to appreciate what they did and they weren't bad they were just a little old-fashioned yeah you know I've had the time. Yeah, a little. They just weren't as hip as Stan, you know. And and uh, but anyway, I thought I could make a difference there, so I wrote a story, and I uh, my mother helped me, mailed it off to uh, the editor at DC, and uh, uh, he he actually sent me a letter and said, send me another one. <laughs> so I sent him another two. I sent him a two-part story, and uh, which was a little risky because I mean, you know, they didn't do a lot of those, but I kind of. But I thought it was a good story, so I did it. So then he called me, uh, February 10th, 1966, and uh, uh, he uh, uh, said, "I want to buy these, and I want you to write a Supergirl story." I said, "Oh, okay." Well, he said, "I said, well, what do you, what do you want?" He said, 12 pages next week." <laughs> <laughs> Get working, kids. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I, I should I mention right we're, on that. We're going to include the uh, interview that Richard Arndt did with you. That's part of this book. So I, I can't remember alter, which one that was. The Alter Ego? The yeah. one that, that read that, Alter Ego. The most recent one, I think. Yeah. yeah. I've never read it, so I don't oh, know. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh. So, I'm but sure I'm, I'm sure it's fine. I wish I had a hard copy to give you. I could send you a PDF if you I, No, I haven't. I, they, some, Roy sent me a book. Okay. They, um, <clears throat> I don't know, I think they were deliberately 
sending it to the wrong place because I gave them the address maybe half a dozen times and then they kept I kept getting these emails from boys that well, why don't you give us your address? And I did five or six times. <laughs> you know? Uh, but anyway I did get it. I just haven't read it. Okay. But I very respectful. Oh good. Well that's nice. That's because sometimes they're not. We actually wanted to but sorry. I don't want to sidetrack. No, you're, no. you're telling us you're getting to the to uh, Karl Barks the new story. Well yeah, I mean basically uh, at, then after I studied it for a while and then especially once I started working for DC regularly, um, then you know and I was being taught by professionals, you know, actively uh, getting being instructed, then I started uh, going back and looking at old stuff, even like the Karl Barks stuff, even though it didn't wasn't like what I was doing, because the fundamentals are the same, and, and so, uh, uh, and that always, that stuff was always one of my favorites. I still had comics, and they, they have since crumbled in my hands and fallen apart, and you can't only read them so many times, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 was, I lived in Pittsburgh, so I'm doing all this through the mail and on the phone. I worked for this guy, Mort Weisinger. And the first few were pretty much, I just sent him, you know, over the transom. Then he started saying, well, give me a Supergirl, give me a Superman. No instructions, just, just to see what I would do, mm -hmm. you know. And then finally, I guess he decided, you know, everything I sent, he bought. And he, and he, he, he uh, I guess he finally decided, well, and he was this guy regular. So he called me up and he said, I want to use you as a regular writer. I'm going to give you, you know, a regular series and then you do some other stuff too. And uh, I want you to do the Legion of Superheroes. And, Occasional Superman, Superboy, Supergirl, world's finest, whatever. I said, sure, fine. He said, but I warn you. He said, he said, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty tough on writers. I said, oh, it's okay, yeah, it's fine. So anyway, he says, all right, well, I want you to come up to uh, New York and spend a week in the office. And I'm like, hmm, how's that going to work? You know, because <laughs> I was, I just turned 14, and uh, so I hesitated, hemmed and hawed a little bit, and he said. How old are you? And I said, oh, I just turned 14. You know? He said, put your mother on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to bring her with me on my first business trip. I can show you other pictures. Would you say your naivete was an asset at that point? Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, I was obviously good enough to get in the door. Right. Um, I mean, insofar as your lack of awareness of the you know, the, the business end of things. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, I learned pretty quick. I, yeah. the, the, uh, I, I told you, Mort warned me that he was going to be tough. And in fact, he warned me even after, after he found out I was 14, he said it again. He said, yeah. he said, I don't care if you're 14, I'm going to treat you just like I treat every other writer. And I said, fine. I didn't realize that meant he was going to be a monster, you know, and it was evil, nasty. But, uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, the guy, yeah. the guy was uh, 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 terrible. He was uh, mean as a snake, um, and that uh, to everyone. I mean, they, the this is an apocryphal story, but they, they, they uh, the story is that at his funeral they couldn't get anybody to give a eulogy, and finally they got a guy who'd known him all his life to say, "Well, his brother was worse." <laughs> it's the best thing you could say about Mort. His brother was worse. That didn't really probably happen. I wasn't at the funeral, so I don't know. But that's I, I, I don't believe. But anyway, so you know, I mean, uh, I, I, uh, he was, he was, he was nasty. He called me up, swearing at me and screaming, and you know, 
I'm a 14-year-old kid. This big, important man from New York calls me up and tells me I'm an idiot all the time, you know? And that must have had both upsides and downsides in a way. I mean, well, in, in terms of forcing you to... Well, yeah, I mean, I did what he told me. And but, then the you know, on the other side, I mean, that seems like an awfully horrible way to try to nurture a talent. Well, that's the thing is, yeah, and but I mean that's how editors were in those days. Most not as bad as Mort, but they they were always yelling at you and chomping on their cigars and screaming and, and stuff. And that was to keep you from asking for a raise, you know. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, so so I mean, but he he would go through the stuff every week. We had a regular phone call on Thursday night, right after the Batman TV show, and. Uh, uh, he would call me, and that was our regular phone call. He would go over whatever I'd sent him that week, panel by panel, like word for word, screaming at me if I made a spelling error, or or and I used to do little layouts to go with go with the with the, the script, and he would say, "What's this guy holding? Is, is that supposed to be a gun? It looks like a carrot." You know, and I'm like, "I'm you know, I'm just trying to lay it out for the artist here. I'm not trying to, you know, I can't draw that well." But anyway, it's anyway, it just yeah. It was, it was he was really. I mean, we we would end up a lot of those conversations with me just saying, uh, well, I, look, I, I guess I just can't do this. You know, I mean, after he screams at me for two hours, I guess I just can't do this. Maybe you better get somebody else. And he would say, no, says, I'll give you another chance. He said, I know your family needs some money. You're my charity case. Yeah, charity case. Right. How's that supposed to make you feel? Yeah. So. Anyway, after a few years of this, I get to be about, you know, late 16, 17-ish, I started to realize he would not keep sending me these checks if I really was that bad. <laughs> it's like, right. nah, this is just what he does. So, so, uh, uh, so anyway, I did get, get past that. But, uh, did he buy every script that you sent him? Or no, every single one. Every single one. Yeah. So he didn't reject a single in, in, script. In five years, I rewrote four pages, and they were, it was because he changed his mind about something he previously approved in the plot. He, he got, he just said, I don't want to do this one scene, let's not do that. And so I took it out. I actually didn't even re rewrite four pages because what I did was I cut and pasted some of the panels. So it wasn't, <laughs> you know, I, I used some of it. I just didn't use, uh, it was a four page sequence that I had to rearrange a little bit. But in, in you know, five years, it, you rewrite uh, three pages, four pages. I'm just trying to imagine what you must have felt like as a kid going through that. I recently had a job where I was treated a lot the same way you're talking about, and I could only stand working at that job for about six or seven months before I moved on. Well, he was right. We needed the money. I didn't have any choice. I, mean, I had to keep doing it. My mother was desperate for money. So. What did you take away from that experience in terms of your own experience when you became an editor? Were there things that you got from Weisinger that you thought, these are things I should do as an editor, or the things that you thought, these are things I will never put anyone else through? Well, that's, yeah, those are basically the, the, the two alternatives you face. If you, if you, there are some people who just can't wait till it's their turn, and yeah. there are some people who say, I would never do that to anybody. Yeah. And so I try to never do that to anybody. On the other hand, um, when I was in the position of being an editor, uh, I had anarchy and chaos in front of me. And I had to be, you know, fairly strict, and and so, so I think a lot of people would say that I was, you know, like, uh, well, Anne Desenti once said uh, that I was um, fascistic, not because Anne doesn't know what that word means. <laughs> Nobody does anymore. <laughs> but but uh, uh, you know, me, she meant dictatorial, right? Sure. 
Yeah. Well, if you tell a guy nicely ten times or five hundred times, you know, you, you have to introduce the characters. About the five hundred and first time you tell them, you tell them a little louder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, you know, so uh, uh, maybe I was, but I mean, when you, when I, well, I was faced with when I when I took over at Marvel uh, as editor in chief, I mean, I had learned from more Morty. You know, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from him. That guy taught me a lot of stuff, and he was good. His approach was more, he believed all comics were read by eight-year-olds, so he tended to aim, aim lower than Stan. And he also, he just didn't want anybody experimenting. He wanted you to stick to the formula, you know. I mean, I got away with more stuff than anybody. Uh, but but uh, mostly he didn't want you, I mean, he would, he, he would, he would give you rules. He would say, you always do this, you never do that. And then sometimes I think Stan does that, it works. And then he'd do it. And then if it worked, he would never say, hey, you didn't, you didn't do what I said. You know, I mean, like, he could see that it worked. You know? yeah. Well, I, I think that, that's one of the hallmarks of your time at Marvel, too. We were actually just discussing a similar point earlier, uh, where you, you seem to care very much about following the rules of standard storytelling, but then you had also creators like uh, Walt Simonson, John Byrne, Frank Miller, who were talented enough to break those rules and do work that was still see, outstanding. See, I, I, to me it was like this. I had Mort saying, do this, don't do that. And then I'd see Stan violating Mort's rules and do, coming up with something really good. And so I thought, there must be something deeper. There must be some bedrock that's, that's under this. So here, here's the bedrock, here's Mort's formula, and here's Stan freewheeling a little bit. And, uh, and so, uh, what I insisted on was the bedrock. I said, I'd make it clear. Clear at a glance. People have to read this stuff. Everything clear. Unless, as a story point, it's not supposed to be clear. <laughs> you know, in other words, if, if you're going to have uh, a figure in the shadows and you're not supposed to know who it is, fine. Yeah, let's not be clear there. But, but you know, if, if, unless there's a story reason for, for doing something like that, let's tell the damn story. The story is the thing. You tell the story. And so so I, 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 I learned from all that stuff that went on before and, and, and uh, Mort taught me a lot. And, um, and then when I worked, when I started at Marvel, I, I ended up, through no fault of my own, actually working very closely with Stan for five years, <laughs> more or less. Uh, because, uh, well, anyway. I learned a, a lot about that, so I tried to go to the bedrock, and I also I also divided it among guys who know what they're doing and guys who are newer or don't know what they're doing. Uh, new guys, well, like Miller, for instance, when he first started out, I said, I said, look, for the first little while, I want you to do the Kirby grid, real straightforward. Don't get cute, you know. Um, you know, I don't want to go over everything. And Marvel, of course. You gave a guy a plot, and then the artist would draw it from the plot. So he didn't have like a panel-by-panel -panel description of what to draw. He had a plot that said, this is what the story is, and then he was kind of the cinematographer. So uh, every time Frank would do a job, he would come in, I'd have him come in, and I'd sit there, and I'd go over with him, and I would say, Frank, I said, there's two guys here, and now there's three guys. Did this third guy hear what they said? I said, when you establish the scene, show me everybody who's in it. You know. It's, you know, place the characters in, in the location, and then, you know, you can do your close-ups and stuff. You know, that was his typical reaction. You know, Frank was very intense. Um, 
so anyway, we'd go over stuff like that. And I said, all right, here you got a scene. There's not much background. Here you got a scene. Is it, or have we cut to Mars? You know, I don't know. You know, to, you have to make sure we understand transitions. I explained about exit, entrances and exits, a key to, to clear storytelling. You know, all kinds of stuff. And, and he goes, hmm, you know. And uh, so then he comes in one day and he brings me a job and I go through it and it's great. It's, it's really nice. And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, it's great, it's fine, you know. He said, really? Oh, okay. And then later he came in, the next day actually he came in, and he sticks his head in my office. He says, I got it. Because we're telling stories. We know the story and they don't know the story. So we're telling them the story. I said, yeah, you got it. <laughs> That's it. So then he started, he wanted to start playing around a little bit. That's when he started doing those long, narrow, yeah. establishing shots in Daredevil with the four movie screens down the side. Because I explained to him, so you got two eyes side by side. The standard field of vision is roughly oblong. That's why movie screens are shaped that way. That's why TV screens are becoming shaped that way. Uh, you know, because that's the most comfortable thing, because that, that's what you'd see if you were there. And um, so he found a way to put more movie screens in, into, the, into the book and uh, do those long, narrow establishing shots. It was, it was to totally cool. But, that's, but he earned the right to experiment, to, to bust it open, you know. The same with Walt. I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, or Sienkiewicz. Uh, He's kind of an exception, though, isn't he, in a way, that it, it is so stylish that... Which one? Uh, the New Mutant stuff that Sienkiewicz... Oh, now, see, there, there's a story behind that. I mean, the thing is, when, uh, when Bill first showed up, uh, the way he showed up is I got a call from Neil. He says, I got a guy here. He said, I don't know if you want to look at this stuff or not. And I said, why? He said, well, he draws like me. And I said, send him over. <laughs> yeah. So he sent him over, and Bill comes in, and he shows me stuff. And it looked very much, you would have sworn Neil drew, you yeah, know, the earlier stuff. Yeah. And, um, and I'm like, holy cow, you know, this is great. So I'm like, oh, what are we going to do? I don't have any, anything to give him. I don't, I'm not going to let this guy leave here without a, a job. I don't want him going over to D.C. or something, you know. Mm -hmm. So I run around, and nobody has a job. I had all these editors, and nobody had anything they could give him. Um, so... Uh, so I went and I, I looked through the, uh, uh, the uh, obsolete inventory drawer and I found a, something that had been written off, it, you know, scrapped because it wasn't good. And uh, so, so I went to him and I said, oh, this is real important, you know. <laughs> yeah, we need, you, we need you to do this, you know. And, I mean, it was it basically was just make work to keep him busy until I could find something real. Mm -hmm. So he went and did that. Actually, he did such a great job on it, he ended up using it. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, like, all right, so at first, he's, he's drawing like Neil, and at first his storytelling wasn't great. Yeah, and it's I, just I kept, one of those 800 numbers, and just like, never mind. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I'm, you know, coaching him and stuff. And, uh, and then uh, he, uh, he, he also had kind of a breakthrough. He came in and showed me an issue of Moon Knight. He said, I did it in a different style. I hope you, I hope you don't hate it. And I said, you know, I don't care. Just be yourself. You know, you know, if you want to draw like Neil, okay, draw like Neil. If you, you know, but if, if somebody showed me this Moon Knight was great. It was a totally different style. And he really got the storytelling and he was doing it perfectly. And he really can do it. And, and he was so good. And so then he and, he and Claremont came to me. Because Bill was capable of doing all this very wild stuff. Mm -hmm. um, 
and he and Claremont came to me and they said, well, uh, uh, he needed, Claremont needed an artist on them. He said, uh, Bill wants to draw us, but what we want to do, we talked about it, what we want to do is we just want to like, go crazy and do experimental stuff. And I said to myself, I said, well, we're Marvel Comics. If we can't experiment, who can? Claremont's mm -hmm. good. Bill is a genius. You know, but I'm swinging for the fences. Yeah, go ahead. You know, and so, uh, so with my blessing, they went and they, and, you know, it was very deliberately planned that they were going to go do crazy stuff. And they did, and it was dazzling. I mean, it's a little hard to read sometimes, but it was, it was, no, I mean, like, you gotta, yeah, no, you gotta experiment, true. you gotta try yeah. stuff and fail. Right. To, in, in one way, it's, it's audacious, right? The mutants were selling big numbers at that point. Yeah. Um, and New Mutants wasn't selling nearly as well as X Men at the time, but it still was selling extremely well. If that had failed, you could have seen sales just plummet well, theoretically across the all mutant books, right? No. I wouldn't say across all the books, but, but at least in, on at that least series. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah. I also say I, I always felt like I think a lot of people in this business, uh, if they get something that sells, it's like a miracle. Like they, 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 <laughs> could, they, they could never do it again, you know. Right. And so they're afraid to tamper with it. They're afraid to touch it. They're afraid to to do anything but what they're doing. And to me, it's like we can do it again. It's okay. <laughs> it's like. We know what we're doing. We're actually doing this on purpose. And uh, so I wasn't worried about it at all. And in fact, the newsstand sales just plummeted. And the direct sales yeah, quadrupled. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so right. it ended up being more successful than it was because the aficionados loved it. Right. You know, the kids the, who, mostly kids, still bought stuff on the newsstand. Couldn't make head or tail. <laughs> you said something similar in the... Your testimony during the Fleischer uh, trial okay. that Ellison, Harlan Ellison, and Michael Fleischer, this right. is going back. But you mentioned something similar there under testimony, <laughs> where you said that an artist can have an effect more so on the direct market than on the news. Oh, side. absolutely. Because it's the you know the aficionados are they're the ones that are more or less buying it out of the comic shops and so on. Yeah, and and, and the, the the thing is like uh, I, I think that the artist gets people in the door. And the right. writer keeps them there. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, if the stories are good, then, then they'll stick around. Um, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I stand by that. That that's, that makes sense. Um, when when did the direct market? I'm I'm assuming there was a point where the direct market had enough of an effect that you could say we're willing to take a chance on an artist. Was that um, around the same time? Well, I know I was not willing to take a chance on an artist. I wanted good books. I wanted good yeah. stories. I mean, mm -hmm. if I had a Sienkiewicz and wanted to try something experimental, it's fine. If Walt came to me and said, I want to do something a little off the wall, fine. You know, if, if uh, one of the younger kids gets said, uh, you know, hey, I want to like, do this crazy like, like Bill does. No. No. Right. No, sorry. Forget it. Well, that gets back <laughs> to what you're saying, where you had a standard for one specific set of artists versus another standard for... Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, once a guy, you know, uh, proved he knew what he was doing, then right. fine. I mean, uh, and, and there's, the, I also have a theory called, I call uh, big guns you can't aim, like Walt. I mean, Walt's great, great talent, but he doesn't want to do what you tell him to do. He wants to do what he wants to do. Fortunately, what he wants to do is usually what I want. So, right. so we never really had any problem that way, but I mean, like, uh, 
uh, some guys can take direction and some guys can't. So John Romita Jr. is just as great as they come, but he'll listen to you and he'll say, oh, okay, I see, and I can do that, you know. Um, uh, some guys just, just aren't, aren't ready to, to do that. But, and if it's a younger guy and he's not ready to do that, then goodbye. And, and if he, but if he's, if he's somebody who has chops and he wants a chance to, to show off a little bit, that's fine too. Um, yeah, let's see. But I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't about like, oh, you know, I'll get a great artist and that'll sell on the direct market. No. I just wanted to make good comments. Yeah. Um, Again, they, that's getting back to what you said to, with the bedrock, which was the story that was the most yeah. important thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that I, trumped everything. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, like I thought about it like, well, when I was a kid, when I was reading those Marvel comics, why did I love them? Because uh, I cared about Spider-Man. Right. Like, I, I wanted to know what happened next, you know? I mean, and, and uh, whereas in, in the, the DC books, first of all, you could read them in any order. didn't matter. And, uh, you know, the characters really kind of never changed or anything. They never wised up or, or you know, did it. Guys always just say, well, we have to keep, uh, you know, developing or keep uh, uh, progressing the characters. And no, you don't. You can develop them inward. You know, you don't have to have Aunt May die. You, you can, you know, you don't have to come up with a thing like that every issue. You know, it's so anyway. But anyway, back to the, the thing there. Uh, uh, you said about the direct market. Yes. Um, when I first started <clears throat> as editor-in-chief, uh, all of a sudden I'm, I'm on the, the circulation list for all of the stuff from the sales department and getting all this information that I didn't have before. I'm getting the, the print orders and stuff. Uh, I noticed on the print order there's, there's, there's Curtis, which was the newsstand. Um, there's subscription. There was uh, the military. Uh, there's Whitman. Um, and then there was this thing called Seagate. Seagate. So I go and ask the circulation director, Seagate. And he closed his door and he admitted to me. <laughs> he admitted to me he had a little sort of cost plus deal with this guy, Phil Sewing. You know, and, and uh, he was giving him, just selling him out the back door at a ridiculous discount. Well, I start keeping track of those numbers. And I start, I notice that it's going up every issue. And and the ones that I thought were good books were higher than the ones that I didn't think were so good. I thought, hmm, a pattern begins to emerge. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so I kept, I kept track of all that. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with it. Now, when I'm talking about the sales going up, I'm talking about from 250 to 300, and the next men from 975 to almost 1100. You know, there wasn't, we're not talking huge numbers yet. This is 78. Right. Um, you also mentioned in one interview, like, you saw it, like, sell-through on the Jack Kirby books at that time. It's being, like, 10% or something. Crazy on the newsstand. On the newsstand. Yeah. But at the direct sales market, they were selling really well. Well, as, as, the, yeah, as it progressed, that's true. The, the, uh, the thing is, uh, uh, so a couple months into my tenure as editor-in-chief, uh, this guy shows up named Chuck Rosansky, and he had tried to get a meeting with Jim Galton, the president of the company, who wasn't interested. And uh, uh, so Chuck came to see me, and uh, we sat down. He said, now, are you, are you aware of the direct market? And I said, well, funny you should mention that, because I've been charting this stuff you know, for a couple months now. And I went back, and I got the old previous uh, sales uh, uh, print orders and, and you know, charted it for quite a while. And I said, I see it's going up and up. And he was thrilled that I knew what I was talking about. 
basically he sort of told me what was wrong with the direct market, how we were doing it, and how we were limiting it by having everything go through Phil, and that was illegal anyway, <clears throat> and all this stuff. So anyway, he had this 11-point plan <laughs> for things that should be done to change the direct market. So I called Galton, uh, the president of the company, and I, I said, you, we need to talk to this guy. You know, you, can I, I want to introduce you to him. You, 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 should, you should listen. So we went upstairs, we sat with Jim Galton, and 10 of his 11 points were enacted on the spot. And, uh, and then there were lots of other developments in the direct market, and there was a lawsuit, and there was all kinds of crap. But, uh, but it did get to the point where we did the right thing, we published trade terms, anybody who could meet the terms could be a distributor, and, uh, and it's, it really started to take off. This isn't a matter of months, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, Kirby, six months into my time there, it was Kirby's last month. Now, his stuff kept coming out for a few months after that. And I'm looking at these numbers, which are now up around, like, like there's other ones are selling 5,000 or 6,000. His are selling 30,000, 35,000. I'm like, so I did the math. I said, that's a, just about enough. To break even. To break even. Yeah. All by itself. Mm -hmm. Even with this stupid, ridiculous high discount we give for the direct market. So anyway, uh, that was actually uh, led to us publishing the first all direct book, which is the Dazzler number one. Right. Over five hundred thousand. Four hundred thirty thousand. Was was part of Galton's resistance to hearing this out the the idea then that was, seemed to be prevalent at the time that comics were as an industry on their way out. Oh yeah. When when, when, it, when I got when he was hired me, he basically told me he, he I, I was to try to. My job was to preside over the death of Marvel Comics, that, that uh, <clears throat> try not to lose too much money until I can get us into other businesses. Really? Yeah. Just completely transition out of the way. He was, he was interested in getting into children's books and animation. And he had been in real world publishing. He had, he had worked for a place called Popular Library, which then was acquired by CBS Books, which, which then fired him. And coming, it came to Marvel with no knowledge or experience of the, com of the comics. And, was there the whole time I was there and didn't, at the end of it, didn't have any more knowledge or experience. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm trying to tell you. Uh, it was, yeah. uh, he, he, he just didn't care about them, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> and I kept telling him, we can, we can be bigger than Disney. I said, no, you're wrong. We can mm -hmm. be bigger than Disney. I said, I need to, you know, I, I took the job on the condition. I said, I, said, I, I, I only want to have this job if I can start paying, you know, our creators royalties. And he said, and I quote, you mean we don't? Well, if you came from book publishing, right. that would be an assumption, right? right? Right. He says, you mean we don't? And I said, no, we don't. I want to start, you know, I want to pay them better on incentives and this and that. And he basically said, just you do whatever you want, he says, as long as it doesn't cost money. He says, if, if you can make it break even, he said, you can do anything you want. I said, okay. So, uh, so basically, I had to make everything sort of self-liquidated, but I, I was able to get all this stuff done, you know, and, and, uh, uh, we introduced all these royalties uh, and things. It's just too bad that the direct market didn't happen earlier because it might have changed the whole thing with Kirby. It would have changed a lot of stuff. Uh, did did your wanting? I'm sorry. Did your wanting to institute royalties to implement that in the company? Did that predate D DC's decision to no, do by, this? No, by, by miles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I took that. Because the, job. The, the the general assumption is that Marvel instituted a royalties program because of DC. No. Okay. I took, when I took the job, <coughs> I, uh, 
That's a condition of it. I, I said I don't want to do royalties. And he so said, that was care. part That's of the, the agreement That's when you, in 1978 yes. when you took the position. And, really? and so, so then I started working with, uh, two, two, two things happened. I started working with Barry Kaplan, who mm -hmm. was the, the vice president of finance. I don't even think he was the vice president, maybe director of finance, something like that. Anyway, um, on, on how to do this. Right. And it, it just it just dragged on and on and on. I mean, because he kept saying, well, I don't think it's fair that the guy who does Spider-Man just sort of automatically gets more money than the guy who does Daredevil right. or, or Ghost Rider. Right. And maybe it should be that we give them a royalty on the increase that they, you know, and no, 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 it's just, just pay them. <laughs> and so we had, you know, this big debate about how to do it and stuff like that. And then he came up with one plan and we were talking about it. And then he realized it was going to take, you know, he'd have to hire people to, to do this. And it just got, it just got complicated. So that goes on for six months. And then as soon as Kirby leaves, which is 1978 around June, um, right away, he starts rattling his legal saber. I mean, I used to say he's, he, that, that there was a lawsuit. There really wasn't. He never, they never filed. But, but <coughs> we're getting letters from his lawyers every day, and it's and and, and and our lawyers, you know, I was in a million meetings to talk about, you know, what to do about this, what to do about that. Well, he was demanding, you know, royalties, you know, back royalties and all that, and uh, and the other one of the other thing that I was trying to get done was I was trying to get all the old artwork returned to the artist because we were returning current artwork but we weren't returning old artwork. Well, now he's he was threatening us about the artwork too, you know, making claims about the artwork, making claims about ownership of the characters, making claims for, for back royalties we owed him and stuff like that. And so the lawyers, when, I, when I'm talking, like, yeah, well, we're going to have a royalty plan, they're like, hell no, you're not, <laughs> because it's like a tacit admission that he's right. Yeah. Right. You can't yeah. do it. You know? So you're kind of stuck in the middle of it. And I'm like, oh, God, you know. Right, you want to do well by Kirby, but at the same time, yeah, I was you, like, don't want the art, you don't want to sabotage. I was fighting right. for Kirby on the inside. I was doing everything I could to, to see if we could, you know. I mean, I, one of the things I proposed is when I finally did get I did get the royalty plan established and stuff, and I also got a part as part of that plan um, that if you created a book, even if you didn't work on the book anymore, you still got a one percent override. Right. Like Burns still gets paid for Alpha Flight, or at least he did when I was there. Yeah. Um, uh, if you create a character, you always own a small piece of that mm -hmm. character. And so, what I wanted to do, I knew that there's no way we're going to go back to 1939 on Captain America, um, but. I said, how about from the date this plan starts, for everyone, we start paying them this yeah. little percentage for, for Fantastic Four, for, for, for all these things. And they, they didn't want to do that. So I couldn't win that fight, but I tried. Uh, but anyway, back to this. So, so we're, we're, I'm, I'm six months into it. I, I, I had an agreement for six months to do this royalty plan. I've been working with this uh, financial guy. can't work out something that suits me. Uh, that he'll live with. Finally, then DC. After a while, uh, well, a couple things. The, the the Kirby situation progressed to the point, and I fought that fight like again and again and again. I even had to go to the board out in, in West Caldwell to try to convince them of some of this stuff. But I finally got to the point where that was the board of the parent company. Yeah, where there's right. no board of Marvel. It was Cadence. Cadence, right? Yeah. right. <coughs> so. Um, 
uh, but I, I finally uh, made some uh, some progress there. Um, but there was still some question about like how to go about it and stuff like that. Then DC announces their royal, <laughs> and I I got a copy of it, and yeah. I said, "Here, Barry." There you go. <laughs> so, anyway, then to, to Barry's everlasting credit, you know, he looked at it, and I guess he felt like, well, we obviously got to match this, you know. Right. Um, and then he said, no, we don't. We can beat that. Mm -hmm. And so, our plan, uh, their plan was 4%, divided among the artists, uh, and artists and writer. Our plan was start at 4%, divided among the artists and writer. And sliding scale of up to eight percent as the sales go up. So, so we had a sliding scale up to eight percent. Then on top of that, we had a, a, a point that went to the creator of the book, if any. Good. And then we had uh, 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 a uh, oh, and then there was a, I, I got the editors to be involved. So, so editors got a little piece of the success of their books. So they got some 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 percentage. Somebody else too. There's a remarkable news item from about 1980 or 81 that talks about how the royalties on every single Marvel book that was presented new material, including I think the lowest selling book at the time, which was Master of Kung Fu, was more than the high the royalty on the highest selling DC book, which I think was Teen Titans. Yeah, there was Teen Titans sold about 175,000, so it paid a decent. Some hundreds they of dollars. They may be the only one. Yeah, right. no, there were three. There was, there was, there was uh, Teen Titans, uh, Warlord, and at that time Legion of Superheroes. Superman was about break even. It was just around 100,000. And they had one or two other books that were around 100,000. And then everything else was below that. And so when DC institutes their royalty plan, it costs them nothing. I mean, because, okay, you know, like a couple of books get checks for a couple hundred dollars, big deal. But if they could get Marvel talent to come flooding over to them, they, they imagined, well, all the sales would go up and that would be all fine. <clears throat> That's how I won the fight at Cades. I said, this is our choice. We do this or we lose everybody. You know, but, but anyway, the, my point is, where I'm going is, is this. They were paying almost nothing. We did the math, and if nothing changed, if, 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 if all the books just sold exactly the way they sold, it was going to cost us like $2 million a year. You know, yeah, <laughs> no, wait, I'm sorry, it was going to cost us, that, that was what we actually did. It was, when we did the math, it was going to cost us like three quarters of a million or something. But the sales went up, and it ended up costing us two million, and we were happy, because <laughs> the sales were going up. Right. So you took over Marvel uh, basically as the industry was about to die, right? You're told to put the, put yeah. the company put out of misery, right? Yeah. And um, I, I wrote a history of comics in the 1970s, and the company really would have died if it wasn't for the success of Star Wars in 77. Absolutely. Yeah, Roy um, kept us alive. But within two years, the company was doing fantastically well. You bet. Um, do you attribute a lot of that success to the royalty program, giving creators an incentive to do uh, work that really engaged the readers? A couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'll tell you a funny little thing. Uh, Vince Coletta, who worked at both at DC and Marvel, and eventually ended up at, at Marvel. but. Uh, he was still doing, doing some stuff at DC, and he came into my office. He said, I want to show you my royalties from DC. And he spread out three royalty checks on my desk. Three checks did not total a dollar. Three checks that did not total a dollar. After a while, Paul Levis wised up and, and said, if it's not 50 bucks, we're just not paying. <laughs> yeah. Anything below 50, you don't get paid. 
So, uh, but but you are correct. There, at that time, uh, every Marvel comic sold over a hundred thousand. Uh, I think Master Country was like a hundred and three thousand. It wasn't doing very well. <coughs> um, but uh, every Marvel comic paid paid royalties, and, and you know, with the sliding scale, X Men paid fantastic royalties. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, so at, at any rate, uh, uh, all right. So why he was getting million dollar checks? Was he? who? Claremont. No, not millions, but big ones. But over the course of the year, six figures. Yeah, you would get some. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember handing Byrne on some book, one issue of one book. I remember I said, I want to give this to John personally. And I remember handing him a check for thirty thousand dollars. I said, you know the comic book we paid you all that money to draw here. <laughs> here's, here's a tip. <laughs> but but uh, the thing is, all right. So when I started, when I started there, uh, I started as associate editor. Um, there was no organization whatsoever. There, there was total anarchy, total chaos. Uh, the way it worked, the, the editors in chief before me, more or less, they were they acted like they were head writers or something. Like, and they're sort of like, well, I'm going to do my books, and everybody's kind of do, try to do what I do, you know. And, and every writer was his own editor. Um, uh, the editors in chief, uh, at least the ones I was aware of. Uh, they left it all to the production manager, who technically reported reported to them. But you'd think that he he ran the company, John Report. Uh, and so you know, like uh, somebody, uh, Steve Englehart, would write a plot for the Avengers. He would send it. It never saw the office. He would send it directly to the pencil. The penciler would draw. He would send the pages back to Steve. Steve would write the dialogue. He would send it directly to the letterer. The letterer would letter it. The letterer would send it directly to the anchor. The reporter would be on the phone telling him, oh, send it to this guy. Oh, class is open. Send it to him, you know. Um, so all of a sudden, this book comes into the office, completely finished. And so there were, like I said, there was no, no editors, no nothing. I mean, we had what they called proofreaders, but <laughs> no. Uh, but anyway, uh, so these finished books would come in, and, they, and there'd be stuff in them that was just crazy. I mean, like, like isn't this guy dead? You know, wait a minute, you know, we can't have him here, he's over there. Um, uh, or the costumes are all wrong. Or, or you know, I mean, they, they make some other crazy mistake. I just, well, one guy, I won't go into it too far, but he, he had become born again and he decided that Marvel was going to be a Christian universe and, and he had Jesus Christ appearing in his comic books. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, 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 this is, this is getting out of hand here. So anyway, I was associate editor, and I started, um, all right, how I, how I became associate editor. Marv Wolfman called me up, and uh, see, he had, he was trying to cope with the chaos. And his theory was that he would get somebody to read the plots. Hey, that'd be an idea, but, you know. And maybe even look at the pencils and stuff when they came in. And um, so he hired Chris Claremont to do that. And Chris's title, are you ready for this? pre-proofer. Like we had the proofers who when the book was finished would go over it and try to and they're proofing it. They're looking for costume mistakes and Thor's belt is wrong and blah blah blah. And so you have John Romita sitting there fixing Thor's belt. That's like killing a fly with an elephant gun. You know. <laughs> but anyway so so uh, uh, you know to, to, to lessen the amount of stuff that had to be fixed at the last minute Marv decided maybe somebody should look at it earlier. I'm like geez that's a brilliant idea. Um, so anyway, but he didn't even know what to call the guy. 
call them pre-proofer. You pre-proof it, and then they'll proof it when it comes in. So anyway, so I, I so that Mark, like Mark, the guy who make sure we you have enough ink in the printing presses or something. Yeah. So 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 Marv, uh, Chris wanted to go uh, be a freelancer. That was everybody did. They got on staff as long as they had to, and then they they got enough freelance, and then they went freelance because working in the office was terrible. Um, so Chris wanted to become a freelancer, and so Marv called me and said, you know, do you want to do this? And I said. Okay, and so I came up to talk about it, and uh, so he's explaining to me the pre-proofing process. I said, "You want me to be the editor, right?" He said, no, no, I'm the editor. I said, "No, you're the editor in chief. You want me to be like the line editor." And he said, "Well, I don't want you called. I don't want you to be called editor." And I'm like, hey, "Look, you know, I don't really give a damn what you call me. You know, as long as you pay me well, you know, it's fine." <laughs> so, so he, we he decided on associate editor. I don't care. That's fine. Close enough. But basically, I became the editor, and then, to everyone's shock and amazement, I started trying to be trying to do that job. <laughs> and, and so, all these guys that had never had anybody even look at a plot, all of a sudden, I'm saying, "No, oh, send me the plot." And uh, uh, you know, some of them did not take kindly to that. But uh, uh, but anyway, I started like trying to get it under control. And a lot of guys, if I found something, I'd call. I was very respectful. I'd call them up and I'd say. I think that you know, you, 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 we need to work on this. Uh, maybe you know we should have something different here, or uh, this dialogue you wrote. It's it's first of all, it's 120 words in a ninth of a page panel, and uh, that won't fit. And uh, you know we have to trim this down a little bit. You want to, and, and half of them would say, "Screw you." I'm busy on the next job. I'm just, you know, because it was page written. Yeah. You got paid by the page, and it, having to go back and fix a page you'd already done and gotten paid for, nobody wanted to do that. So I so ended up doing. So quantity over quality at that point. Oh, absolutely. Right. Because you just, you know, the faster you turned it out, the more money you made. Um, right. And uh, so a lot of these guys didn't want to do it. So I ended up doing a lot of rewriting, and uh, some guys were some guys were great. I mean, there, there was the guys like. Uh, if Archie Goodwin wrote something, first of all, it was always perfect. Uh, one time I found a spelling error, and I was like so pleased. <laughs> oh, I found something. You know, Gerber's stuff was very clean. Uh, uh, there were some guys, uh, and Claremont, to his everlasting credit, uh, he didn't want anybody else's words on there. He wanted his words. And so I would find stuff with his work and I would say, you know, Chris, you know, it might be nice if we mentioned the character's name this issue <laughs> and, uh, and stuff like that. And, and, and so he would grumble and he'd go find a typewriter and he would fix it. So, I mean, the first time I tried to like put a little note in the margin, he came and he said, don't do this, don't do this. And I said, why not? He said, I want to do it myself. I said, okay. He said, just put an X and then tell me what's wrong and I'll fix it. So that's what I would do on the scripts. I'd put an X. He said, what's this? And I'd say, you know, well, you know, Chris. You know this this uh, uh, character is. Uh, you know, you, you got this thing here, and it doesn't work because what you said in the previous page. And then go and he fix it. And it was really funny. He used to like retype the whole page so that the scripts would be clean and pristine. <laughs> but but uh, but no, I, I admired that. I thought you know he doesn't want my words. And one time I actually I screwed up, and I, it was too complicated to explain. So I just kind of wrote. A couple words for this caption and in the margin. 
and he couldn't think of a way to say it better in that much space. And he was really annoyed that he had to use my words. I said, well, you want to come up with them yourself? He said, yeah. Anyway. But that was, that was kind of cool. But I, I you know, I, I started, I, what I tried to do was, when I was the associate editor, I didn't have the power to, to hire or fire anybody. Um, but I, I could sort of enforce things a little bit, and I could fix things. So I did. I, if a guy was willing to fix it, fine. I, I just explained to him what it was and, and, uh, and uh, you know, what the problem was and, and let him do it himself. A lot of guys weren't willing to do that. I ended up doing a lot of stuff. And, uh, it, uh, but I, I was trying to shore up the bottom. You know, Archie stuff is fine. You know, Gerber stuff is pretty good. I just got to watch out for the sex and violence. Uh, you know, catch little mistakes here and there. But, but uh, you know, try to like work on the, to raise the level on the bottom stuff as much as I could. And uh, so anyway, then I become editor-in-chief. Now they're all afraid. Oh God, now he has power. You know, he's, not only is he an editor, now he's, he's, gonna, he's gonna make us work, you know? Yeah. Uh -huh. So I started having meetings with the writers. My first meeting was literally, I mean, the major subject of that meeting was, was you need to mention the character's name in the story someplace. You know, I mean, you need to identify these characters. Right. Not even introduce them. Just tell me who it is. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And uh, so that was one of my first meetings. We talked all about identifying the characters and stuff like that. And then the next meeting was something has to happen in each issue. Now that sounds pretty simple, right? So I showed them. And I don't want to pick on the Defenders guy, but I'm going to. <coughs> um, uh, I, had, I had like three issues of Defenders. And the first one... Uh, this group is off in an alien dimension. These two are having personal problems. Uh, these ones are in a fight. The second one, these in an alien dimension. These two are having personal problems, and these guys are still in the fight. Third, the fight is finally over. They're back from the alien dimension. They come back from the alien dimension, and the personal problems are different. I say, you could take this issue, throw it away, and no one would know it was gone. <laughs> Seriously, you could really do that. You could, if you read the end of this issue and read the beginning of this issue, nothing had changed. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole issue of nothing. And, uh, and I said, I said, got to have something important that happens every issue, you know? Later we'll talk about story structure, but at least have an event, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, uh, this was not helping my popularity. Uh, but, but at any rate, you know, I mean, we started kicking and screaming. I dragged these guys toward, toward telling the story better. Now, some guys didn't need dragged. I mean, Goodwins and those guys, they, they, they obviously knew better than I did. But uh, <clears throat> I, was, I started making a, an improvement in the, in the stuff by getting them to introduce the characters and identify the characters and have stuff happen. And I started preaching structure and started preaching storytelling and, and uh, pushing them as hard as I could without, you know, breaking their spirits, you know, and, and uh Oh, thank you.